You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So this is a cool conversation. I'm talking to Ross Dawson, who's a world-leading futurist, entrepreneur, and keynote speaker. And he's got a great new book. It's called Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Ross Dawson, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. So I'm reading your new book, uh, Thriving on Overload. Uh, on Overload uh, and I'm thinking to myself, man, there's so much crossover around improvisation. And indeed, I get to page 168. And you do talk about improvisation. You mentioned Second City and Yes And. So you're kind of the perfect guest for the Second City Getting to Yes And podcast. So let's start there. How does how when and how does improvisation show up in your work and in this book in particular? So the for me, it is a way of letting ourselves free. Hmm. And this is we we are we are constrained. We are built up with all of our lives, all of our education, all of it is about keeping ourselves in. Whereas improv is about letting out what is inside us. So this falls in the book in the chapter on synthesis. Mm-hmm. So the book, the subtitle of the book is the five powers of success in a world of exponential information. And the final, the fifth one is that of synthesis. And in our, you know, I suppose, again, taking on that parallel between contemporary society and what is our potential, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary society is around analysis. It is around the breaking of things down into pieces. And whereas synthesis is the exact opposite, is the pulling right. together of the pieces into the whole. 
And our educational system teaches us to analyze, teaches us to break things down, to to be uh you know to be analytical to not see the whole but to see the pieces and this you know one crude parallel is that the analysis is that of the conscious mind where we are sort of thinking hard whereas the unconscious mind is that which is below the surface which pieces the, together the holes which makes the connections and that's what we need to do in this complex world is to see the connections see how the world fits together to connect the dots as it's often put and make sense of the world in order to be able to see opportunities to make better sense of the world to be able to make better decisions in an extraordinary complex world and that comes from below the surface and improv is a way of being able to let that mind free to let those connections be made to see the whole so i think there's an extraordinary uh practice yeah for anybody and everyone in order to facilitate that welling up that capability that potential which is below the surface in most of us and which in leaders in particular needs to be expressed yeah, the, literally in my notes here, I have uh, that I often refer to improv as human being practice. And when people mm-hmm. ask me what I'm saying, I'm saying, if you know about Kahneman's work and system one, system two, the ability to go between rapidly go between your system one and your system two is what happens when people are improvising. And I also thought it was interesting and I was intrigued and actually um, bought the book uh, that you mentioned. And this is the scholars, John uh, Cunius and Mark Beeman whose research on insights notes that what's happening in the brain at the moment of an insight is linked to making distant connections, such as understanding humor and metaphors. And while improv and humor making are two different things, they're deeply connected, right? Because that's what we do. Yes. We, we, and, and so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I find that research brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And so John Cunius and Mark Beeman are two academics who came across each other and they were both had this common interest in saying, what happens in the moment of insight? And that's something we all experience. And so, some at bigger scale than others, when uh, Einstein suddenly saw the, the concept of uh, the general theory of relativity and many other Nobel Prize winners, it has been in an instant when they've seen this idea. They've pulled together different pieces to be able to, to have an insight, which was powerful. Yet, yet all of us, uh-huh. we get, ah. We say, aha, that's, I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good idea. Or, or these different ways of connecting or seeing or just in the process of learning something. You know, we're just as students at school or students as, as we are older, we work and we study and say, I don't quite get that. And then we say, aha, I got it. So what these uh, researchers found is that there is a state of our mind when we are, when we make those connections, uh, where you know, which is part, of course, this process of synthesis of seeing the whole, and this is we can study this and we can nurture it. And what they found is that before that moment of insight, we are often fall back into this, you know, what describes the alpha state of our mind, when it was basically a state of relaxation, when before that we may have been in a state of excitation. We're now brains are actually actively engaged. And one of the, the summaries that the authors came to is saying we need to cycle 
the best way to nurture creativity is to cycle between that essentially that analytical mind mm-hmm. and that relaxed mind so that we can sort of work out at a problem and then we let go of it and go and go for a walk in nature we come back to that and i think this is something we can learn to practice and there's different cycles as you say that's part of what actually happens when you're on stage and yeah. something's coming out of your mouth but it is also something i think through each day we can practice run say okay i'm going to really work really hard today well in fact you may be far more productive and creative if you work really hard and take a break you work really hard and take a break and do things completely different things and so that's part of that cycle that cycle of engagement and disengagement of the brain underlies that capacity for creativity and connection making I was on a conference call earlier today with a small group. I'm, I'm going to do a panel um, on the power of play. And uh, it, this is aimed at, at young girls. And uh, one of the other panelists is um, she runs a, a play lab for IDEO. And so we got to talking. And of course, design thinking has that same spirit where they're, they, it's messy. <laughs> and when you walk in there, you're like, yes. what is going on? But, but they're working on really difficult, complex problems. But the whole point of play, and this is the thing, I, I guess I'm just... I wonder your level of frustration that we have all this science around the way people learn, uh, the need for uh, mess and all those things. And yet so many of our our, our uh, school spaces, our university spaces, our workspaces do the, the exact opposite. They, they don't provide for any of that. Yes, absolutely. You know, that, that's, you know, which goes to the broader, broader point around education. Our education system is uh, not what it could be. Uh, in many ways, including the fact that it is just focused on that that analytical, and we can bring. There's, there's a lot of scope for improvement. Let's say, yeah, <laughs> so that, that's something we need to bring to bear. And, and of course, in our formal education system, and the fact that, of course, education has to be lifelong, and we can yeah. bring that to bear throughout our lives. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, in the introduction to your book, you write, "Quote: Thriving on Overlord uh, uh, starts with the premise that who we are." Our identities and lives and destiny are framed by our relationship with information. Humans exist amidst information. That is a really fresh perspective. I don't think I've heard on this podcast, but it certainly brings again elements that we've talked to people about. But talk about humans and relationship to information. And I think especially context becomes hugely important here. Well, the first thing I suppose is as a definition of information, information for me is anything that comes in through our senses. Mm-hmm. So if we hear something, if we see something, and that could be the sound of a baby crying, that's information. The 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 the, uh, the tone of that baby crying, that's information. Uh, so it's not just when we look at a screen or a you know a newspaper or a television channel that it's information. Information is everything. You know, and what what we catch out the corner of our eyes, we're driving along. That's information. And our brain processes everything that we take in. So that's the, the nature, that is the foundation of how humans have dominated the world. Yeah. Is where that's this progress. We have seen information and we've been better at processing and saying, aha, well, maybe if I do this, I can make a fire or I can build a building or what becomes a city or how about a, a round wheel? put a few of them together and we make a car and let's go to space. 
you're building on it, is information, our ability to take in information to learn from others. So when we write things down, that's information as well, and we can learn from others. So we are information processing animals. That is the nature of what it is to be human. And this is a, a joy. That's, that is the, this is the wonder of being human, is the fact that we have all of this and we make new things of it. Everybody is creative. And that, that's another thing I love about improv and you know, the book Improv by Keith Johnston. I mean, one of the yep. points he makes is that everyone who keeps on denying, I'm not creative, I'm not creative. Well, in fact, no, you're extraordinarily creative mm-hmm. just by denying you're creative. Uh, and this is a, uh, and so this taking in the information and making new things of it is what it is. We are, is what it is to be human. So this focus on saying, how do we make value from this information, be better at it, to discern the things which we should be seeing, to move our attention away from the obvious to the less obvious, to make sure that the things that the information which comes in serves us. We're not continuing to take in, all right, this is the tedious headlines of the day all the time, but actually looking for saying, ah, this is inspiring or this is something I can learn from, or this is intriguing, and to make sure that our information diet, that the information we take in is information that serves us, makes us better, makes us more able to come up with new ideas, and then let the wonder of who it is to be human to make new things of that, create wonders. So let's talk about the five powers. Uh, and uh, the first one is is purpose. And, and you do a semi-dangerous thing in the world we live in, which is uh, you have nuance uh, to this idea. <laughs> and in many places, when people talk about purpose, it's, it's like one thing. And yes. uh, you seem to be suggesting in this book that there are many purposes at different times. And you have a lovely uh, quote. You say, quote, have you ever doubted the trajectory of your life? I dearly hope so. The only way to find your path is through a process of discovery, which by its nature means sometimes or often going off track and then realizing it. And I love that because that's 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 such a it's such an improv thing, of course, of making mistakes work for you and seeing obstacles as gifts. It's this essential if you can if you can find the reframe there, there's there's a yes there. Right. There's there's potentially something something bigger there. Indeed, the the this way of framing we we have to make accidents. We have to we have to make mistakes. There's no such thing as a perfect life, and be, and in fact, the best lives are fraught with all sorts of falling off, uh, falling into the ditch along the way, and uh, picking ourselves up. Maybe not on the side we thought, but on the other side, and there's something there. So this is where we need to be exploring. And, and again, as you say, this uh, this worship of this idea of purpose. Oh, you have to have a purpose. Yes, we do. We do need some mm-hmm. direction in life, something which draws us towards us. But making that too fixed is also dangerous. Right. We need to be we need to be continually discovering our purpose and our direction, and not just the you know that that big frame of you know why I was born, but also the smaller things of, you know, this is the ways in which I can help, the ways in which I can enjoy myself, the experiences I can have, the the, the role of being alive and in many things and those relationships between information. I think, you know, part of it is, you know, we, we are learning animals. 
So part of being information-based animals, we learn and we seek to learn. And one of the questions, one of our purposes, what will I learn? You know, some people believe that learning is very pragmatic and, you know, it can be and it should be. But I also believe that learning for its own sake. What would I love to learn? And that's one of our purposes is learning for its own sake and learning to be able to apply that. Another one of our purposes is to be well, help others be well. Another is to pursue our passions and understand that all of these are part of us and the directions in our life that help us guide the information that we use and how we put that into practice through our lives. You also nod in this section around and, and we've talked about this a bunch with like a science writer, a former monk, uh, a happiness expert about where we choose to put our attention. Um, and you, you write about this in the context of news. And I know that's something that my therapist and I have discussed many times, which is she said, like, Kelly, you need to cool it with the political podcasts. You're like you consume a lot of information already. You read the New York Times, you've got NPR on. And I, and I did. I found myself like engaging with this content and it was not bringing me any joy. Um, and, and I was not abdicating my responsibility to think as a good human being on this planet. Cause I'm, I vote and I try to keep informed, but it was just, it was stealing my attention in ways that I don't think it should. Yes. This, this is one of the big frames around. We say, all right, we engage with the world of information and the news. And I think, you know, the political news is a big part of that sucks us in. It's a, that's the headlines. We see what is happening with our politicians. I think whatever, whoever you are, there are politicians that you hate. It. <laughs> and, and that draws us into, uh, and this is, it's again, part of the flaws of human nature in a way is we start to be, you know, it can become obsessive and starting yeah. to see these things. So, and also, you know, many, many aspects of the news, the, the very fact of news itself is negativity, the, part of the negativity bias of our minds to looking for what is dangerous or or, or difficult as it starts to pull in. And of course, news itself is designed to suck us in, make us come back. You know, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. an industry and it's good at it. So all of these factors mean that almost every single one of us spend more time on the news than is good for us. Yeah. And so this is part of where we need to build in some practices and say, yeah, well, sure. Okay. I want to be informed. Every day I'm going to look at the news. Well, that's essential, but fair enough. But for a specific period of time, then that's done. And then you can move on to some of the joy creating or value creating things in your lives and leaving that slice of the news and with all of its, you know, often negative emotions associated Mm -hmm. with that uh, aside. I know we've nodded already to this, but the second power is framing. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm looking at my notes. I do extensive notes for these things. And, and one of them, I don't necessarily understand what I meant because I, I wrote down just taking notes, but it's not in it's not in quotation marks. I think I probably know what it was in terms of the uh, the power and value in terms of writing stuff down and taking notes. I, I think that's maybe what that, what that means. Or is it something else from that chapter? Well, framing is building frameworks. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that simply that information taken alone, any piece of information taken alone is probably very little value. It has value when it is connected to other pieces of information. So the frameworks that we build are ones that actually draw out. What are the connections? Where does this fit? 
Uh, one of the ways in which I organize these ideas in my mind or in a piece of paper or in a piece of software. So note-taking is more than just writing things down because that can just become a list yeah. and a list of things. All right, a list of links, a list of articles, a list of ideas. That's a starting point. But where it has value is when we build this into a framework where these see, we see the connections between things, you know, where it is that this a piece of information fits. Does this fit here? Does it not? Does it fit somewhere else? Does it not have a place? In which case I need to refine my framework. And the key aspect of these frameworks is these are the foundations of our knowledge and our understanding. So we can vastly accelerate the development of our knowledge and understanding not just by simply by taking notes and dumping things in a place which we don't look at them again, but in a way where there is some structure to it. And in the chapter, I draw out a few of the fundamental structures for how we connect the different pieces of information we see. But whatever it is that suits us or the topic, uh, the ways in which we can take information, put that into a framework of where it connects in or fits, and thus vastly accelerate our development of knowledge and understanding. Um, I just had this thought as you were talking uh, of, and I don't know if you've ever seen sort of like backstage at Tyrant Live uh, where they have post-it notes of like the scenes and that sort of thing, the order they go in. And this is something that they got from Second City and Second City got it from Vaudeville. But it's this this idea of the elements of comedy review that um, can actually uh, uh, <clears throat> succeed much better if they are in a particular kind of order. And, and you learn about running order. My wife teaches this. She's a comedy professor. Uh, but it's interesting. I just I sort of realized, oh, like in a process when we're creating a show, there are hundreds of these cards that are pinned up and they slowly start to be, have a shape. They get moved around. And sometimes crucially at the last minute, you just do move something there and it just makes everything work better. And sometimes we don't know why sometimes we do. Uh, but that's that's a little bit of that, that what you're talking about, correct? Absolutely. So this yeah. is, where you're laying out your ideas. And yeah. so, you know, this is my framework. This is my understanding of face. This is the way it all fits together. And absolutely, this is where you can move things around. So one of the people I interviewed for my Thriving on Overload podcast, you know, what I describe as information masters mm -hmm. and, uh, and how they work, she uses a murder board, uh, what she describes as. And so, okay. you know, the classic layers you see in the, the TV movies and Sherlock Holmes, you have a bunch of things on a wall and you move them around and you draw lines between them. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is something where we are, you know, we lay things out and how they're connected on the wall. And that's when we come back and, you know, we literally see the big picture yeah. of yeah. how things are framed. And that's the note taking, which is valuable. One, which is on a wall far more than one, which is across a whole bunch of little pages. And we've got to go through that. We are trying to bring ourselves to see the big picture and how things are connected, whether that's on a page or even better on a wall, then yes, it's, it helps us to see all those connections. I mean, that, that also makes me think of the research I've seen around what, what we're perceiving in terms of information when we're looking at something on our phone, as opposed to when we're like in a vast canyon. And it's, it's completely different. We, we actually are limiting ourselves by uh, making the, our frame smaller. Um, and I, I, I've had bosses in the past who they only did their work on their phone. And I'm like, at least can you go to a desktop? At least can you make it a little bit bigger? 
because and and I think the thinking that I saw in particular with with these humans is is that it did it limited their ability to see widely. And one of the points I also bring out in the book is around peripheral attention, mm. where our attention can be focused very tightly on one thing in front of us, or it can be in our whole field of view. And you know, it is a very specific technique which we can use to get ourselves into a relaxed state, into an open state, is simply to be looking straight ahead and to push our attention to see what it is we can see at the side peripheries of our vision. And this is, it's, it's a, not just a practice, it's also a metaphor. We need to be pushing ourselves to see the peripheries. And the more, t- you know, again, this is part of the cycle. Yes, we need to cycle. Sometimes we tightly focus. Yes, sometimes we need to be pushed out our attention as broadly as possible. And I also point in you know, the introduction of the book around the paradoxes. You know, there are many paradoxes of being able to thrive in a world of information overload. And, and one of those is that, that interplay or that cycle between, yes, we need to be focused, and yes, we need to have very broad attention. Yes, we need to be able to see all of the, the minutiae and the details, and we also need to see the big picture. We need to be going, going between these states in order to be able to be uh, a value and focus does, you know, maybe sometimes very tight things. Yes. I've only see one thing right in front of me. That's sometimes that has its purpose. If you're trying sometimes to get a baseball. we need, we need to move to the big picture. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, in the chapter on the power of filtering, you introduce us to Claude Shannon, who I just found like, and you had to like, what a fascinating figure. Can you tell us about him? So Claude Shannon is an idol of anybody in information and computing. You know, he's one of one of the godfathers. Uh, he create he wrote a paper called Information Theory, and he he came up with the idea of a bit, which are now bytes and terabytes and so on. And so he was worked for Bell Labs. He was a researcher, an incredibly creative. Person, you know, is on the use of hobnob with um, Einstein and so on, and, oh. and throwing around ideas. Uh, so he lived in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, not far from the Bell Labs research. And you know, his one passion was music. So he used to go out to jazz bars late at night and uh, you know frequent things. And he was a bit of an introvert, but he loved his music. So when he was at home, he had his record player and his clarinet and his piano, but it got very cold one winter. And so he chopped up his piano and burnt it. He still had his clarinet and his record player. And he played his record player very loud. And downstairs, neighbor came up and knocked on his door and ended up in a romance. And she ended up being an incredible, uh, a leading uh, psychiatrist, uh, you know, in this whole in world of ideas. But he was, his insight was around what, information is really this was groundbreaking at the time foundation for all of information communication we have the foundation of communication and he worked on this principle of at the time we had telephone lines were very uh, noisy mm-hmm. and he wanted to be able to make sure that we had the signal what we could actually hear people say was sufficiently greater than the noise the background noise and this is a great 
you know, way of thinking about the world we live in. There's an extraordinary amount of noise, more than ever before, and we need to be able to perceive the signal out of that. There's another character in this um, chapter, uh, Dietrich Machitz, uh, who I, I think is an incredible illustration of someone who has this sort of pain point, uh, but then sort of throws them into a, 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 just a, a place of, of unknown to them, and then and then really sees, like is able to, you know, can, can you tell us about him? Yeah, well, again, this is around focus versus breadth of vision. A lot of people just say, okay, I'm busy. I've got to get here. I'm going along there and I get from A to B and there I am. Other people actually look around to see the world. And that turns out to be sometimes extraordinarily valuable. So uh, Dietrich Maschitz was essentially a a toothpaste, I believe it was, (laughs) a marketer. And he ended up in Bangkok. And for those who haven't been to Bangkok the roads are very, very busy, and getting around in cars is very slow, so they have what are called tuk-tuks, these three-wheeled uh, motorcycles where you get in the back of a little seat and the driver drives you around to wherever you want. And the city is filled with these, all very colorful and ways of getting around. So so Dietrich Maschitz got into a tuk-tuk to get around because that's the way he got around in Bangkok. And he noticed that his driver was drinking this drink. And he noticed that other tuk-tuk drivers were drinking this drink. And so he asked about it. He says, you yeah, well, what are you drinking? And they told him what it was or wrote it down so that he, that he'd go back to his hotel and check out what it was. And these are people that get up very early. They work very long hours in order to be able to make a living. And uh, so he found out what it was and went to the manufacturer and translated the name of it was Red Bull. So mm. he licensed the uh, the beverage, this caffeinated uh, sugary beverage, which kept people awake. And he set up a company called Red Bull. And now there's more cans of Red Bull sold than there are people on the planet. So wow. he looked around. He saw something. He saw an opportunity. He took it. And he got rather wealthy as a result. Yeah, amazing. Uh, in the last two chapters, Power of Attention and Power of Synthesis, <clears throat> I'd love you to sort of help us continue to myth bust things. Uh, and the first is in the Power of Attention, um, multitasking. Is that a thing? It's in fact, is does not exist. Uh, okay. Well, it, it, it does exist in a, a number of things. So we, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, hopefully. And we can also chop vegetables while we listen to a podcast. Mm-hmm. But for anything which is cognitive, in fact, what, what is happening when we think we're doing two things at the same time, our brain is switching between the two tasks. And more recent studies using fMRI have actually demonstrated clearly that our brain is not active at two things at the same one time. It is switching between those two tasks. And there is a cost to switching between tasks. We need to resume, finish one task, you resume the other tasks and switch between those. So in fact, it is extraordinarily inefficient. And there are research has shown that if you put in multitasking situations, people who believe they are good at multitasking, believe people believe they aren't good at multitasking, the people who believe they are good at multitasking don't perform as well. Right. Because they are, uh, yeah, they're essentially trying to do something which is not possible, where the ones that don't believe they can multitask do it in a more effective manner. Okay, and the other one is Myers-Briggs. Ah, 
So, so I mean, the story behind Myers Briggs is is lovely, uh, where essentially uh, Catherine Myers was wanting to keep a relationship with her daughter who'd married uh, Mr. Briggs, mm-hmm. and you know who had a very different personality. So he was trying to uncover that. So she did was inspired with the structure of the Myers Briggs from uh, Carl Jung's uh, psychological types. And I love Carl Jung's work, and I, I think that that actually does relate a lot to uh, improv in the sense of yep. the way he looked at the nature of the unconscious and how that can be expressed. Mm-hmm. But but it was you know essentially his consideration, you know, his thinking about things rather than being based on research. And so the uh, Myers-Briggs, I think, subtracted one of the, the psychological types of your They sort of played around with a bit and came up with something. And it's, it's pretty solid. So I think there's a large proportion of people who have been in corporate world have taken a Myers-Briggs test at some time and they know what they are, uh, you know, whether the, the extrovert or, you know, extrovert, introvert, the, you know, t- intuitive sensor, thinker, feeler, or judge a perception. And that is can be useful typology. However, that has been transcended by more data-based research, mm-hmm. where essentially a whole a number of different types of researchers and taking different approaches have tried to unpack what is the scope of the variation in human personalities. And so they have come up with a different framework. And this is consistently, time over time again, they've found that. And there is a little bit of overlap with the the Myers-Briggs, but essentially it's what often called the ocean framework, which is around the degree of openness to experience, uh, conscientiousness, extroversion, um, uh, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And so this is now a far more rigorous framework uh, in being able to say across each of those different types, even those different personality types, you know, there, we have differences in our personality. Some people are more neurotic than others. Some people are more agreeable than others by their nature. But while I was pointing particularly to openness experience as one of the fundamental drivers of value, and there's a wealth of research showing that those people who are more open to experience, essentially more successful and happier and more engaged with the world. Uh, But across all of those things, these are not fixed. And I think that's one of the the real insights from more recent uh, understanding of, uh, you know, psychology and personality is that the way we are when we are born, the way we are when you're young, the way we are in school is not necessarily even who we are. We can then have choice. We have volition. We can change who we are in order to build our personality, some which is more functional and helps us, leaves us happier. And that's something we can evolve over time. And, and I think that you know, improv, again, is something which can facilitate us in developing some of the personality traits that can advantage us and you know, make us uh, happier in life. Yeah, I think so too, obviously. And, and, and the other thing is, you know, we're as human beings as storytelling machines. We know that. And then, um, we're such unreliable narrators of our own stories. And, and I know that for, for myself, I've been caught so many times where I've been like, Hey, remember when I did this thing? And the person I'm talking to goes, No, I did that thing. And I'm like, You're right. I did not do that thing. 
And, and this has been a process of self-discovery over my, you know, 56 years that I've been alive. Um, and, um, I don't know it, it, uh, I think at, at first it felt like a sad burden and now I kind of find it joyful and weird. Um, and I think that's in the, in the way that you write in the book, quote, problems are the spark for invention. So this is just a, a problem that presents itself potentially as an opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. It's, this is, um, we are becoming, as I said mm. before, you know, we see ourselves on a journey of becoming, then that begs the question, who do I want to become? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but before we do that, uh, I really loved this 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 phrase that came from Reed Hastings, where he talks about farming for dissent. Um, because I, a thing I've noticed uh, over time is like hu- human beings aren't crazy about dissent, especially in the world of business. And I started working with this this new executive on our team, and man, this dude farms for dissent, like in in the in in a very positive way of like this isn't personal. This is about challenging us all to be our best our best selves. But I, I just realized in working with them how rare that has been uh, that I've seen that at the leadership level. Yeah, so so Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. And he, part of this came from a big mistake. They made a massive mistake along the way, destroyed an immense amount of value. And he realized that, yeah, everyone was saying, okay, yeah, that's, they, people disagreed with the idea, but they weren't really voicing their, mm-hmm. their, uh, you know, disagreement with it. And so I think I love that word farming though. It's like yeah. you're, you're cultivating it and saying, all right, well, this is, we're going to grow this. Mm-hmm. This is something which we need to nurture and is alive. It's not saying, okay, just. And every year there's okay. a good, you know, right. It's like, this doesn't stop. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, again, it, it is, it is a, it's the bane of, of so much in, in business. And, you know, when we're, when we're improvising and there are no mistakes um, because you just have to use what's in front of you, you're not in that brain. You're not in your judgment brain of self or others. You're just doing and then often it's when you step down from the stage and you have a director or a coach who's also going, oh my, like that was, let's script that, <laughs> you know, like we have something, we, we made something. Um, and so, the, and, the, and those spaces are not rare in theaters like ours, but they are rare uh, in, in a lot of companies, uh, unfortunately. So, Yes, and you know, more broadly, those companies that are, better performing over the long run are the ones where those kinds of uh, conversations are not just accepted, but welcomed. That's right. Uh, All right. We always end the podcast uh, asking for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Well, yes, I do. So so this is uh, (laughs) a long ago. (laughs) Well, a little while ago. So this was um, uh, was around a table and a, this was early on during COVID and uh, a mate of mine had his office, a wonderful space the, where I live on that beach. And he's uh, had to move out. So he's oh, okay, we've got to move out of our space. We can't keep our business going there. We're going to go remote. And I, and I, this is, you know, do you want to use it? This is, whoa, well, you know, I've, Got way too much on, mm-hmm. but that's something I have to say yes to, and I'm going to make that into an innovation hub. Mm. <laughs> and 
it's go it's uh i just gotta go all the way with this get my business you know find a business partner come into this with and to build it and to make it so the aftermath of that is a completely different story but it was one of those times when is it a happy story uh, or a not so happy story not so happy actually okay good but uh, you know covered again sort of uh wrought its wrath on us mm-hmm. um but you know there's happy bits along the way of course as well you know it's endings are not not the the, the entire story but uh yeah it's i it's it's kind of this it's interesting because i i'm a sucker for things that are worth doing and i sometimes say yes more than things but i am also yeah, I also try to constrain things. I always want to say, okay, look, I've already got too much on. I do need to learn to say no. And so this, there is this cycling between this this no and sort of this idea sometimes, which is so compelling, you have to say yes. I think and, you, you can yes and yourself. And in and, and yes anding yourself to say a no is is being true to yourself in terms of like, no, I... I Yes, I love this idea and I can't do it. Like I just, you know, I know for myself and I, it's a, probably a matter of age and, and, and the time we live in all that. Like I can't be out like four or five nights in a row, which of course I am this week. And I'm looking at my calendar going, what did I do? And they're, they're all things that I want to do. They're, they're, we have an international film festival. We've got concert. It's a wonderful meal. I'm going to enjoy all these. I know, but I also know. As much of a, as I am an extrovert, there's an introvert part of me, again, because that's true, uh, that needs space to sit in my garden. And I'm not going to have that. Yes. Time. Yeah. 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 And, you know, that's that's part of the end as well is it's both of those. That's right. Uh, the book is called Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information. Ross Dawson, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Kelly. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.